In the name of the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Jesus is at it again. And in our text, especially situated within the larger context, Jesus is in hot water with folks from his hometown of Nazareth. Chapter 4 begins with the following. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized and was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. Having overcome such temptations, Luke goes on to inform us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee And a report concerning him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. He went to the synagogue, as was his custom on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, read the prophet Isaiah. Then he sat down in typical fashion of a teacher. And he said the following. The Spirit of the Lord, recall, is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captors, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. These are the words that lingered and for some exploded. Today, Jesus said, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Fulfilled in your hearing. Today. At these words, Luke reminds us that people were impressed. They were so impressed that the gracious words that proceeded out of the mouth of Jesus, fulfilled today in your hearing. And then someone in the crowd, perhaps in a loud voice, perhaps a whisper that scattered throughout the crowd, Hey, is this, this is Joseph's son. Is this not Joseph's son? Once again, he is known. Perhaps the crowd included cousins, aunts, uncles, friends, no doubt. And Jesus, aware of what's going on, engages in dialogue. So no doubt you will quote me some of your local wisdom. Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you do in Capernaum, do here also in our country. And well, the back and forth continues. Eugene Peterson in the message records it this way. Well, let me tell you something, Jesus said. No prophet is ever welcomed in his hometown. Isn't it a fact that there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah during the three and a half years of drought when famine devastated the land? But the only widow to whom Elijah was sent was in Sarepta in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah, but the only one cleansed was Naaman, the Syrian. Peterson goes on, that set everyone in the meeting place, seething with anger. They threw him out, banishing him from the village, then took him to a mountain cliff at the edge of the village to throw him to his doom. But he gave them the slip and was on his way. In your hearing, Fulfilled today. 
I can remember my first visit home from seminary. I recall going to church, which was my custom, and I enjoyed attending the adult education classes that were given at the church, my, my local church. I would say I was empowered. I don't know. I, 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 I think Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think I was empowered by everything I had been reading about Karl Barth and all the theological jargon I had gathered in seminary. And so in the class, we were going over a portion of John's gospel. I remember when the instructor invited comments, I said, well, those are very interesting observations. But have you considered looking at it this way? And then when I went on, according to Karl Barth, you know you're in trouble when someone does that, according to Karl Barth, God's yes to humanity is a yes that changed the course of history. Can we really accept a view of history, I went on, that is rooted in the epistemological tradition of the Enlightenment A history set on underscoring the progressive nature of reality and the human enterprise. I I was saying this stuff. It's coming out of my mouth. Can it be that we've given up our sense of historical situatedness for an a priori, ahistorical, meta-narrative that is devoid of all particularities? It seems to me, I concluded, that there is a tension here one that a Hegelian understanding of history may very well remedy, at least serve as a provisional interrogation of this truth. A lot of Karl Barth, a lot of Hegel, Heidegger, in your hearing today, and on that day, epic fail. As my sons are always apt to say when I say something abstract, this is what they say, Wait, what? I'm sure you've heard that. Wait, what? The people in that synagogue on that Sabbath day were likely saying the same. Wait, what? Did he just say that? Is he aware that we languish under the oppressive regime of the Romans and the puppet powers that control our reality? Is he aware that we don't like to talk like that around here? Widows and... Pagans and Gentiles. You've got to be kidding. But yes, Jesus brings into play at this moment of inauguration in this instance of coming from the wilderness, of stepping out and stepping into the work and mission of God in the world. Yes, Jesus says. As we move forward in this mission, We need to take into account the grandeur of God's grace extended to everybody. This widow and this leper are part of the narrative, are part of the story. As we gather around Torah, as we gather in synagogue, or we gather here in church, this tradition, these texts are the fire around which we gather to hear once again the story that sheds light on life and grants us grace to understand our very own story. Yes, the other is intimately connected. Take a look at Nehemiah, a story of restoration, of reconstruction. 
a story of both tragedy and grace, a petition that goes from Nehemiah to King Artaxerxes, who supplied permission and and supplies to rebuild the broken walls of the city, the temple of Jerusalem. The, the, The king, the pagan king, the Gentile king, that commissioned the rebuilding of the ancient city of David. Yes, they are in the middle of the mix. And that mention of others seems to drive folks crazy on that day at the synagogue. Crazy enough to pursue the unthinkable, to seek the undoable. And Jesus slips away. Not run away, but slips into the mission because the mission goes on. And I think the mission goes on through us as Paul reminds us of the gifts that each one of us contain and are called to ripen in the midst of serving others, in the midst of praise and the worship, in the midst of all that we do as we gather around the fire of our faith and tradition. The glory and the grace of God ripens and extends to all. Yes, the other. Toni Morrison, in her book, The Origin of Others, in writing about another context, says that what can dominate the heart at times is the sense of the allergic reaction to otherness and to others. She writes, why should we want to know the stranger when it's easier to estrange another? Why is it easier? Why, why should we want to know the person that seems to bring anxiety to us, the, the other that seems so far and distant and strange? Why move close? Morrison writes that in moving close, we discover our own otherness, that we too are other. And I think from a, from a Christian tradition, that encounter is what grace looks like. When we approach one another through the grace of God and discover the depth and beauty, the dignity that we pronounce at baptism, the baptism that Paul reminds us, with the baptism that we share, Jew and Gentile, all people share. It's not simply a confession. It's equally a task. So Morrison says, why should we want to know the stranger when it's easy to estrange another? That logic that keeps people at a distance. Or why should we want to close the distance when we can close the gate? Jesus opens wide the gate. And on that Sabbath day, that synagogue announced the very core of this kingdom work that we've been called to do and to be. To be aware that God is at work in ways beyond our willing and our knowing, in ways that also invite us to expand our hearts, to open the gate, to expose ourselves to the risk-filled practice of loving our neighbor as we love God. In our hearing, today, Amen.